today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 verses 33 through 46. 21, 33 through 46. Uh, Pastor Stu is going to be here for two weeks after me. I'm going to be here this week and next week. So we're going to do uh, four sermons on uh, Jesus's, some of Jesus' parables in Matthew's gospel. And so this morning we reached the first of those, which is the parable of the tenants. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Let me read for us. Hear God's word for you this morning. Jesus is speaking. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I will tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, we need God's work. Uh, to help us understand this in God's Spirit. So let's pray and ask God to be with us as we look at this together this morning. Our Father, we do pray and ask that You would come and do right now what You've promised to do and what You have done for thousands of years, that You would work, send Your Spirit to work through Your Word, equip us to engage our community with the Gospel and to engage our own hearts this morning with the truth of the Word and with the love that Jesus Christ has for all people. And Father, we pray that You would bless us and that You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, Amen. So how, here's the question to open with. How would uh, you, you think, how would you think you would respond if you had seen Jesus raise someone from the dead? How do you think you would respond if you had seen Jesus raise someone from the dead? That's a hypothetical question for us, obviously, but it's not a hypothetical question for people that lived in Jesus' day. There was a man who saw this, and his response might not be what you think your response would have been or what any of us would have expected. Perhaps you think his response would be one of amazement or joy or adoration or submission, but it wasn't. It wasn't any of those things. His response, rather, was one of anger. He was furious, in fact. Now, upon hearing that, we might think, knowing nothing else, that this was some atheistic, 
God-hating liberal. (laughs) But it actually wasn't that sort of person at all. This was a highly respected man in one of the most strenuous religious sects in history. This man was a Pharisee. You can read about this story in John chapter 11. After Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend from the dead, manifesting his amazing and supernatural power, this Pharisee, along with most of his zealously religious clan, began to seek to find a way to kill Jesus. They were enraged, in fact. And here's the idea that I want you to get. Religiosity, religiosity alienates you from Christ. Religiosity doesn't bring Christ's blessing. Religiosity, in fact, brings Christ's judgment. And that's what this parable of the tenants that I just read for us is really all about. Um, Jesus here is in the middle of a pretty extensive section of teaching in parables. And parables, as probably many of you know, are not exactly like a story or a novel that we would read today, but they were very sort of earthy tales, uh, down-to-earth stories that Jesus told to get his point across. And very often after he told a parable, it seemed to confuse more than it cleared things up for people. But this parable is different. The people that Jesus is speaking to, the religious folks, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and um, the religious leaders of the day certainly get what Jesus is saying. So what I want to do with you this morning is, is look a little bit at what Jesus is getting at in this parable. And as I mentioned, I think at the end of the day, it's a parable about religion and all of the bad that can come with mere religion, that can come with religiosity. But as we look at it this morning together, I I hope and I pray that we won't hear what I'm saying and read what Jesus said and think to ourselves, those poor Pharisees, they never seem to get it. And I hope also that we won't read and hear this parable and think, this is sort of a strange parable that doesn't have a lot to do with my life. After all, it's by and large a parable about the Old Testament people of Israel and how they rejected their Messiah, Jesus. I hope that that won't be either of your, any of your responses. Rather, I hope that you will see what's always true of parables, that parables are, are in a very real way mirrors on our own hearts. They're mirrors on our own hearts. Jesus wants you and I to to see ourselves this morning the way that God sees us. He wants us to see the severity of rejecting God's prophets and rejecting God's Son and settling for mere religion. Okay? So this parable in a very real way is a warning to us and it's a a reminder to us. So let me encourage you to give it your full attention Uh, as we look at it just for a few minutes together this morning. There's four things I want to show you in the text, okay? Four points. The nature of God, the hardness of men, the plan of God, and the reaction of the religious. So there's a little page there with that outline. You can take notes if you wish. Otherwise, I'll just assume that you're listening very attentively. Um, Four things for you, okay, as we look at this text together. So let's look first at the nature of God, which we see very forthrightly and particularly in verses 33 through 37. Um, And I want you to see explicitly that Jesus is setting up here in this story a contrast, obviously, between the generosity of this landowner and the wickedness of the tenants. And obviously, also, the master of the house is intended in the parable to represent God the Father. 
And the tenets are intended to represent the devout Jews in the time in which Jesus lived. So given those obvious sort of one-to-one parallels, given that central contrast, let's look first then at what the story tells us about the nature of God. Look at there again in verse 33. Uh, First we see God's kindness. Jesus begins the story by talking about this master who planted a vineyard. And as we saw in both readings today from two different parts of the Old Testament, the vineyard is a key image uh, for the original people who were hearing Jesus speak this parable. Because when you heard the word vineyard and you were an Old Testament Jew, your mind was immediately filled with all sorts of religious symbolism and meaning. Uh, so when a, a Jew who knew his or her Old Testament, like the ones Jesus was speaking to, heard him speak the beginning of this parable, that a master of a house planted a vineyard, it's very likely that they probably thought of some of the passages that we heard this morning, like Isaiah chapter 5 or, or Psalm 80. In Isaiah 5, as we read, Israel is compared with a vineyard, and it's really an extensive literary metaphor. So what does this vineyard language connote? What does it mean? Well, it should be fairly self-explanatory, right? Think about it. In September, uh, my brothers and my dad and I took a vacation up to the Napa Valley in Northern California, and very few people that I know leave the Napa Valley thinking that place is a dump. You know, very few people leave the Napa Valley thinking, what an ugly place. I wish that, you know, God would just wipe that place off the face of the earth. No, it's beautiful. It's incredible. It was uh, amazing. And by the way, there's this amazing little hamburger stand right on the main highway through the Napa Valley that I stopped and had a hamburger and they home grew their tomatoes and behind the stand. Anyway, it was, it was great. So I was sitting there eating my hamburger in the middle of the Napa Valley in a beautiful fall day and thinking, this is This is pretty nice. You know, I could get used to this. Well, that's what we're supposed to think about when we think about vineyards. And the point of Jesus using this illustration of vineyard here and the point of vineyard illustrations in the Old Testament is that it's a very kind thing for God to, as it were, plant his people Israel as a vineyard. Um, Vineyards in the Bible are always associated with good land, with, with blessing, with happiness, right? So the fact that the parable makes use here at the very beginning of vineyard imagery suggests for us that God has been exceedingly kind. He's been exceedingly kind to Israel, to his people. And we also see his kindness just in the first verse there and how he takes care of and protects the vineyard. We read that he planted the vineyard and he protected the vineyard. He built a fence and he built a tower maybe to watch for wolves and foxes. And he built a wine press so that the grapes could be smashed and put to good productive use. You see, the landlord has provided in every way for these tenants, hasn't he? He's given them this well-cared-for vineyard that was very productive. And the point is obvious. God the Father, Jesus is saying, God the Father has been exceedingly kind and loving and gracious to Israel as a nation. Israel hadn't earned that kindness. They hadn't in any way merited this favor from God. God has simply chosen to show these people favor of all the peoples of the earth. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this, The only ground of God's love is his love. Isn't that profound? The ground of God's love, he says, is only and wholly in himself. There is neither portion nor proportion in us to draw his love. There is no love or loveliness in us that should cause a beam of his love to shine upon us. 
And yet God does clearly shine the beam of his love upon these people, upon Old Testament Israel, upon the Jewish nation that Jesus is speaking to here. He's very kind. And furthermore, we see that his nature is also very patient with these people. Uh, The landowner who's set up these tenants very well that we just saw there in verse 33 leaves the country, verse 34, and when the season for fruit comes, he sends some more of his servants to collect his profit. And uh, very obviously, right, things don't go so well for these servants. Jesus tells us that they're beaten and they're stoned and they're killed, verse 35. Yet, and this is the amazing thing, yet the landowner, at least at this point at least, withholds vengeance. You know, I'm thinking if I'm a landowner who owns all sorts of beautiful property like vineyards and I'm letting tenants stay on it and giving them a really good deal and all I'm asking is that once a year when the harvest comes, I can come and take my share of the crops and they kill the guys I send, I'm going nuts immediately and sending in the army to enforce the law, right? But that's this fine, this landowner doesn't, doesn't do that, at least not immediately. He's, he's, almost illogically patient with them. He's uh, ridiculously kind and patient. It reminds me of a famous saying that my wife loves to tell me. Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Found seldom in a woman and never in a man. (laughs) I can't imagine why she tells me that, but uh, as I read this, that's what I think about, that God, unlike me and unlike most of us, is exceedingly patient here with his people. He doesn't immediately seek retribution for the evil and wicked behavior of these tenants. He's kind to the tenants. He's patient with the tenants. And Jesus is clearly and forcefully saying, God has been kind and patient with you, religious Israel. The second thing we see, though, um, is the hardness of men. And given what we've just seen about the nature of God as presented in the actions and attitude of the landowner, the hardness of men, which we see in the tenants, is really even more despicable and even more appalling. Think about it this way. Imagine this summer, you know, it's 110, whatever right now, brutal. Uh, You get to go away for a month. Um, A friend that you have, he's probably an imaginary friend. Most of us don't have friends like this. But a friend loans you their beach house right on the beach in San Diego and tells you you can stay there for a month completely free of charge. And you get there and it's just unbelievably immaculate and glorious. And, you know, I've got little kids. So the whole time I'm there, I'm going to be making sure that my kids touch nothing. You will not break this. You will not destroy that. We're going to do the absolute best we can to take as good a care of this house as possible while we're there. Because we recognize the generosity of my friend who's allowed me graciously, kindly, to stay in this beautiful beach house when I could be in 108 degree heat in Tucson, free of charge. You would think that would be an appropriate and normal response, right? But that's not at all the response of the tenants. It's as if they take baseball bats to that beach house and smash it up. And then when your friend sends some of his buddies out to wonder what's going on, they smash them up as well. Men's hardness is very clearly on display here. Verse 35, 36, they mistreat the servants of the master. That's the first way we see the hardness of these men. They beat and they kill and they stone the first one sent, Jesus tells us. 
And then verse 36, they follow, follow it up by, by doing the same thing again after the master has been patient with them and sends them more servants rather than coming and wiping them out. They again beat and stone and kill them. And what Jesus is referring to here is, is in the history of God's dealings with the vineyard that is Israel. Again and again and again, the people of God have treated the prophets of God horribly. You know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, particularly with the prophets at all, that very, very, very quickly and very, very clearly comes across. And that's what Jesus is referring to here in the story. Just to give you a few examples, I think of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who had a ministry that no pastor in his right mind would ever want. He had a ministry where he ends up saying things like this, Woe is me! My mother that you bore me, I am a man of strife and contention to the whole land. All of them curse me. Ezekiel, his experience was very similar. Another prophet of God said, The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, God says to him, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Elijah, another prophet in 1 Kings 19, flees the evil queen Jezebel. And he's upset because he recognizes at that moment that he's virtually all alone. In the middle of God's country, the prophet is all by himself. The prophets of God for thousands of years at this point have had it very, very badly from the people of God. Just like these people that the landowner sends had it very, very badly from the tenants. The hardness of men coming out again. They mistreat God's servants. And then verse 37, they kill God's son. And this is, uh, as it were, the last straw, right? Patience from the landowner is going to run out when this takes place. And I want you to see that this is a, a premeditated action. Look at verse 38. When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves. So they have a premeditated conversation about this. It wasn't just sort of a a random fit of rage that caused them to kill the son. It was premeditated. It was wicked and evil. And they thought it all out beforehand. And furthermore, I want you to see how stupid and ignorant it is. They think, they're at the end of verse 38, that if they kill the son of this landowner who's been kind and patient with them, that then they're going to get his inheritance. Come, let us kill him and have have his inheritance. As if, right? As if the landowner is going to allow them to kill his son and then get away with the inheritance. As if the father is not going to avenge this horrible act of brutality. You see, these people have mistaken the patience of the landowner for ignorance in the landowner. So the parable, doesn't it? It it paints a very clear picture both of God's kindness and grace and mercy and of human wickedness. The wickedness particularly of the tenants representing the religious leaders of Old Testament Israel. You know, I doubt that any one of us, no matter your spiritual or religious background, would disagree that the behavior of these tenants is foolish and wicked. If you disagree with that, then we need to have another conversation, maybe outside the church, after church. But I doubt any of us disagree with that. Yet, um, we need to hear Jesus' point. Listen, If you do not have God in your life, if you ignore him day by day, if you put off dealing with the questions that the gospel of Jesus presses on you, if you ignore what is spoken to you from this pulpit and other pulpits week to week, you are acting foolishly and wickedly just like these 
tenants in Jesus' parable. What do I mean? Well, there are, there are many ways, right? There are many ways that you and I can ignore God and act like the vineyard is ours and not his. We can do it explicitly and brashly like these tenants do. We can claim that he does not exist. We can chart our own course in life. Or we can do it subtly and much more dangerously. Like the Pharisees Jesus is speaking to here. We can treat the landowner as these tenants treated the landowner by, by hiding from God in our religion and church going and morality and decency while ignoring the call of God's word to humble ourselves, to sacrifice for others, to listen to his servants who speak to us. Listen, this is what Jesus is driving home for you, folks. You can be in church every week of your lives and never hear and never change. You can be in God's vineyard and ignore, despise, and ridicule God himself. So don't ignore Jesus' words here. He is warning us. God is coming, and God cares how we think of him and whether we live for him and whether or not we're an upstanding pharisaical citizen or the most rebellious prodigal ever. It's all going to be the same in the end. How have you treated the landowner? So we see the, the nature of God. We see the hardness of men. And then thirdly, I want to show you something else. We see the plan of God. And that's particularly evident in 42, 43, 44. So the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders, they get the point of Jesus' story, as they say in verse 41 there. What are we gonna, what should the landowner do? Jesus asked them and they, they nail it. Rarely, as I mentioned earlier, do people actually understand Jesus' parables. But the Pharisees get it here. They say, well, the landowner should come in there and put those wretches to a miserable death and lease out the vineyard to other tenants who are going to actually give him his own property, his fruits when the season comes. And Jesus says, you're right. Well done. Well done, you've, you've gotten it. And then he, he sort of gives them the punch, the punchline of this parable by quoting this, and it doesn't really seem to fit with the story, but he quotes from Psalm 118, which is one of the most quoted parts of the Old Testament for the New Testament writers. And this quote, I think, is the most remarkable part of the passage because what it's telling us is that this, this dastardly behavior on the part of the tenants to the landowner and to the landowner's sons and servants, son and servants was, was a part of God's plan all along. That's what Jesus is getting at in using this quote. We learn here again that God's kingdom will be established. It's going to be established despite Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Despite Israel's rejection of the king, the kingdom is still coming. That's why Jesus says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders rejected the stone, but nevertheless, it's still, he's still going to become the cornerstone. So not only then, here's a summary. Not only do we see God's patience and kindness and men's wickedness and hard-heartedness, but we see that all of it is a part of God's sovereign plan in bringing his kingdom to earth in fullness. You know, he's basically saying, 
All along, I've been aware of the fact that the tenants are going to reject me, the landowner. And all along, I've been planning for that rejection to bring about the acceptance of people from, from all different nations of the world into the kingdom. It's not just about you, Israel. It's about all the nations. So Jesus is saying it doesn't matter whether Israel's leaders reject him or not. His kingdom is going to be established. And so he's saying you have, you have two choices, really. You can either be a part of that kingdom and be blessed, or you can oppose it and be crushed by the stone of the kingdom. That's what he's saying there in verse 44. You can reject the kingdom or enter the kingdom, but either way, God's kingdom is coming. That's Jesus' main idea. No one can thwart the plan of God to establish his kingdom and to bring his king. Isn't that amazing? Isn't God miraculously and completely unpredictably powerful in the way he has orchestrated history to unfold? The people that, of all people, should have known what was coming, should have recognized Jesus for who he was, are the very people that rejected him. And yet, in that rejection, the door is open for people like you and people like me. People who most of us probably aren't Jewish. We're probably not from the nation of Israel. And yet, we have been allowed to enter into God's kingdom by grace. All because of God's plan unfolding, even sometimes in what seem like wicked and terrible ways. So, the plan of God is evident here. And then I want to show you one more thing. Um, We see in these final verses... Verse 45 and 46, what I'm calling the reaction of the religious. Remember how we started the subject, started the sermon. Religiosity alienates you from Christ. Um, And I want to use these verses as, just for a couple minutes more, uh, a a launch pad, a, a jumping point for just one final consideration with you this morning. Here's the question, really. Here's the question that Jesus is always asking us when we read the New Testament, when you sit down and you read your Bible, particularly when you sit down and you read the Gospels, there is a real transaction taking place. Do you know that? The, the God of creation, your maker and your ruler, is pressing on you when you read his word this question, how will you respond to me? How will you respond to my claims How will you respond to my death? How will you respond to my resurrection? How will you respond to my deity? That, that, friends, really is always the question that Jesus is asking, and not just of of sinners, not just of the prostitutes and the tax collectors, but also of people like most of us, the religious types, the churchgoers, the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees. You see, Jesus... Jesus loves these people. He, he loves these Pharisees who are at odds with him. Who, he, he loves these scribes who are, even at this moment, planning and plotting to kill him. Sure, he's warning them. It's a pretty stark warning. But he's not warning them because he doesn't like them. He's not warning them because he knows they're going to kill him. He's warning these religious people. He's warning you and he's warning me. Because he's greatly concerned for their and for our souls. This is, this is an electric fence parable. It's a warning, but it's a kind warning. It's a warning with the intent to protect. My three-year-old son, Nate, loves to jump on our couch. Um, 
And it's produced, as you might imagine, some unhealthy consequences for him and, and his siblings, especially since we have, you know, like many of us, a coffee table not far from the couch. When he jumps on the couch, sometimes he takes a little bit of a dive or goes a little bit too far to the right and, boom, smacks that coffee table with his head. Or even worse, he will use it like a trampoline and pop his sister off onto the coffee table. And I warn him all the time, Nate, no jumping on the couch. You cannot jump on the couch. That is not something that's going to be allowed in this house. And because he's three, well, not as just three-year-olds, we all have to be warned time and time again, right? Three-year-olds particularly, but all of us need to be warned time and time again. Now, I'm not warning Nate in those terms because I'm, I'm angry at him or because I despise him or because I want to see something malicious happen to him. No. I'm warning him simply because I love him. If, if I didn't warn him, that would be malicious, And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. His warnings, his pressing these questions upon us. How are you going to respond? Are are loving actions by him. The Bible is warning us here out of spiritual slumber. And that in itself is an act of grace. That's why when we read a parable like this, we're not to, we're not to detach ourselves and, and think, as I said earlier, those, those poor foolish Pharisees, you know, you know, the parable is about us. It's about my heart, and it's about your heart. It's asking us, how will you respond to Jesus? And we see that the religious, we know the end of the story, so to speak, the religious community here continues to ignore his warnings. They make their decision concerning him based on fear and guilt and pride. That's evident there at the very end, verse 46. Although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. Now, in just a few days, they're going to find a way to arrest him, and he's going to be put to death by them. But for now, they're too afraid of the consequences of doing it. They perceive, verse 45, they perceive that he's speaking about them, but they have no answer. And they refuse to listen. They refuse to heed his warning. They refuse to turn to him in faith and not in anger. And listen, that is why this parable is so piercing, particularly for religious people. It's piercing because it shows us, as so many of these parables do, that the religious person is always, listen, the religious person is always, always driven by fear and by guilt. You know, religion can be used in a good sense. I'm using it here in a a bad sense. I hope that's been made clear. The merely merely religious person, the, the pharisaical person, is not driven by grace. They're not driven by love. They're driven by fear and by guilt. And because that's true, they always fail to heed Jesus' warnings. And we see that fear and guilt drive a person's heart not towards Jesus. Fear and guilt drive people's hearts away from Jesus. That's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. They're persistently afraid with him, afraid of him and the crowds, and they're, they're persistently operating out of this sense of guilt, and it completely drives them away. So how are you responding? Are you, are you pharisaical in your approach to Jesus? And how do you know? Let's do a little self-diagnosis just for a minute, okay? We're almost done. Um, how do you know if you're approaching Jesus the way the Pharisees did? Well, The Pharisees were the first people to say, well, that story clearly applies to them. So if you've been listening, or you hear sermons from time to time, and and you immediately pops in your mind, and think, so-and-so, my brother-in-law, or my boss, or whoever really needs to be here to hear this sermon. This applies to them really, really well. 
you immediately start thinking about who else the sermon applies to. That is a sign. It's not a guarantee. That's a, that's a sign of Pharisaism dwelling in the heart. The first tendency of the Pharisee is to avoid, just like these people do here. They avoid Jesus. They avoid Jesus. And then when they can avoid him no longer, they say, secondly, if you can't avoid, you respond with anger. How dare you talk about me that way, Jesus? I do all the right things. That's the Pharisee's mantra. I do all the right things. I'm religious. I'm duty-driven. I'm fear-based. But they're always seeking to avoid having the word penetrate their own hearts. And if they can't avoid that, they get angry when it does penetrate. You know, this sometimes happens to me in marriage. I'm sure I'm not alone here. When, when my wife will lovingly, gently confront me about something that I've done wrong or about some thoughtless thing I said or something that I did that I certainly should not have done, a lot of the time um, in my sinful nature, my, my first response is to avoid. Oh, I don't remember. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. You know? That's the first response. And then when I can't avoid it any longer, I get mad or I get defensive or I say, well, you did this. And that is, that is not gospel life welling up in me at that moment. That is Pharisee death, Pharisee death rising up in me at that moment. That's, that's a sign, you see, that you haven't really gotten the gospel yet, that, that Jesus is someone that you're avoiding and then Jesus is someone that's, that's making you angry. So is Jesus getting through to you here today? Remember, there, there are two possible responses to Jesus. Either we will run from him, and that can very often take the guise of duty-driven, duty-driven, religious, church-going, feigned obedience. We can continue to print, pretend that we can get away with it, running away from him like the tenants and the Pharisees, or we can run to him, recognizing our need repenting and asking Jesus to forgive us and receiving mercy and grace. So friends, this parable is urging you and it's urging me to to run to Jesus. Listen, his kingdom is coming. No matter what, the landowner is going to return. He's going to return and seek justice. And so I urge you now to enter into the kingdom through faith in Jesus. Don't do what the Jews did. In Jesus' day, don't do what these religious people did. In Jesus' day, recognize that you need Christ. You need his death to pay for your sins. You need his resurrection to grant you life after death. You need his spirit to make it through the pilgrimage of this life with joy and with peace. Listen, you need Jesus. So how would you react? Second question, how would you react if you had been in church your whole life and Jesus came to you and told you that you didn't get it at all? How would you react if you had been in church every Sunday and Jesus came to you and said, you have no clue what it looks like to follow me? That's exactly what Jesus did to the Pharisees. We saw one bad example when the Pharisees saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They were angry. But there is, there is a good example that we should follow in the Bible. There was another man, much like probably a lot of us, who gives us hope. He himself was a religious man. He himself was a zealous Pharisee. He was a decent, law-abiding, and church-going citizen. And he listened to Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. You can read about him in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus in the night. 
because he was somewhat fearful of how his compatriots would respond if they knew he was coming. And he said, tell me more. Tell me more. I want to know what it means to truly follow you. And Jesus said, you must be born again. And you know how the conversation goes. Nicodemus was humble enough and willing enough to hear Jesus' warnings to the people of his day and to respond in faith by running to him. So what is your response going to be? That is the question of this parable. Will you get out of your religiosity, get out of your mere religion, get out of your duty-driven, fear-based way of life that we all tend to fall into from time to time and go to Jesus, even if it's in nighttime like Nicodemus did? Or are you going to be angry? Or are you going to continue to reject him? There's only two responses possible, brothers and sisters. Each day we have the opportunity to turn to him and run to him in faith. And I pray that that's what we'll all do today. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that in your word you speak to us starkly and vividly. We thank you that Jesus, as the master teacher, was a man who told stories that were intended to penetrate deep into our lives, to cause us to reflect and diagnose our own hearts and come to terms with where we are. And Father, we do ask that as we read this parable and think about this parable together this morning, that we would not be like the religious people of Jesus' day who were content and satisfied with their own religiosity and completely missed the boat of grace. We pray that we would not respond when your Spirit begins to pierce us with conviction, with avoidance or with anger, but rather we ask, O God, that you would use these parables which are like swords that pierce deep into our our souls to, to provoke us to repentance and faith now and each day, God, that you would use these parts of your word to, to turn us to run back to you, oh God. We need that. We need your grace to do it because on your own, we will never turn back to you. We will always go on our own way. So show us grace, oh Father, we pray. Show us your mercy and your love. May we not be as those wicked tenants who again and again mistreated you and your servants, but rather may we turn to you in repentance and in faith through the gospel that Jesus Christ has freely offered us in his death and in his resurrection. We pray these things in his name. Amen.